Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fabulous episode of The Real Talk with Rob Tabby. Today, I have an amazing guest with me, Chris Church, who is revolutionizing the supply chain between manufacturing components and hardware, really bridging the gap between, you know, from innovators and R&D into building a full production, really getting the nitty gritty of what, what is the supply chain, how is manufacturing work and how do the components work and what we are in today and how technology is evolving, innovating, or is innovating the, the future for our industries and for everybody's, I mean, for the whole world in, in general. So uh, Chris, pleasure to have you on The Real Talk. It's great to be here, Rob, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, I always enjoy talking with you, and uh, it's, it's great to be here on the podcast with you today. Yeah, it's awesome. So you're, as the, as the founder and chief product officer at Macrofab, what does that entail, and how did you get there? <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, so, you know, at, at Macrofab, we're a digital electronics manufacturing platform. We're really connecting companies, no matter where they are in their production, whether it's prototypes or mid volume, all the way up to high volume uh, with stranded labor assets in North America. That is to say, we're, we're really helping to connect um, our customers with factories, uh, whether it's a factory we own or one of our partners, and really, you know, focusing on giving them a lot of supply chain diversity and solving those problems. And, you know, in my role as chief product officer, I lead our technology teams, um, that is product, software development, customer support, business intelligence. But really, at the end of the day, my, my job is really about delivering the uh, an excellent customer experience. Uh, whether it's through our platform, through our human processes, kind of, kind of wherever we need to, kind of looking in there, and just really making sure that we're we're living up to the promises every day. How I got here is actually a pretty easy question. I created the job. Um, okay. I I had a robotics company before this, and um, so I was on the customer side for electronics manufacturing, and I I just wasn't getting the experience I wanted. I wasn't getting the tools I wanted. Um, you know, I like to say for you know for, for 30 years, all the investment went into the manufacturing line um, at, at the at the factories, and very little went into the customer interface. And so, you know, I started Macrofab, and uh, with the idea of building the service, the product, that customer interface, I really wanted to have. Yeah, I mean, again, bringing technology into the supply chain of manufacturing. Of course, you know, we are. Um, I mean, we're the basis of any invention or any type of hardware that we are in the world. And really, it's it's funny. The last couple of years, I think the, the forefront of supply chain is on headline news everywhere because of logistics, <laughs> supply chain, the shortage and the pandemic kind of lit the fuse to really bring uh, the awareness to the industry of manufacturing and how through the last, I would say, 33, four, five decades, it has transitioned, especially the last two decades to, um, about all of the subcontract manufacturers and all the outsourcing and all the things that's happened from because of course at the end of the day it comes we're on the business to make money at one day and it's everybody's about profitability how do we get those you know lower lower costs at the same time you know into the to the con to the consumer or to the to the customer in general to give them a better product lower cost to be more competitive in the market and a lot mm -hmm. of that happened with outsourcing and outsource to especially asia is the big trend china and southeast asia the big areas where a lot of assemblies and board filling is happening and then course it gets distributed back to Europe to the US for the final product to the customer around the world globally mm -hmm. and really understand you know where we are and that it's got so complex because the subcontract manufacturers that everybody subcon you know because it has subs everybody contracts out different pieces of their widget whatever they're mm -hmm. making to different facilities and what's going on around the world so now bringing that back we're 
today. I think um, Macrofab really today is feeling a bridging a gap. I would it um, my assumption is bridging a gap because a lot of people want to bring some manufacturing back. They want to have control of their supply chain. They want to be able to um, deliver to their customers faster, quicker, have more data analytics, business intelligence, understand supply chain. So I think on your platform, really, because um, basically I think so was software, right? You're a software-based platform that created, then brought in the manufacturing and bridging two gaps between the inventor of a product and the manufacturer and being that service provider, correct? In a lot of ways, yeah. So we actually are a manufacturer also. Uh, we have a full manufacturing engineering team in-house. We have procurement program management, all sort of the, the traditional functions you have um, in contract manufacturing, but it's all powered by our technology platform. And it enables us to spread workloads across multiple factories. And so one of the you know, when you kind of think about one of the reasons a lot of companies are coming to us today, and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned, you talk about, you know, uh, labor cost and, you know, everyone wanting everything to be cheaper, you know, for most of recent history, you know, I, I, I know we have some uh, people on our team who are young enough that their entire life, all manufacturing has happened in China, right, for the most part, right, at least that's what people think. And, you know, I really recall early on when we started this business, everyone said, why do you do this? Everything's made in, made in China. I'm like, well, it's not really. In fact, there's, you know, uh, today there's something like uh, uh, about $250 billion in manufacturing in North America for electronics. Um, so it's a really, really big market that's really, a lot of people aren't aware of and uh, how exactly it works. And one of the things that we've really seen over the past, you know, maybe five years really is a recognition is that you can't just keep sending it to a cheaper location. You can't move all the production in the world to a cheaper labor location, right? You, we now are starting to see the, the global order is changing a little bit. It's getting a little riskier for a lot of companies and supply chain diversity is what matters. That's how you can ensure that you could continue to get product out there. And the idea of single sourcing things, um, we, you know, all of our customers want the ability to multi-source. But that is a nightmare in management. And that's really where we come in. We're able to streamline and single source the materials, for example, while multi-sourcing the labor. And our technology enables us to do that in a, in a really intelligent way to be able to take a whole catalog of products from a customer um, and look at how we can cross those together, how we can put the, the manufacturing in the right factories without losing the advantage of combining those bills of materials into one purchasing stream and being able to route that, being able to reutilize um, test equipment, um, being able to retrain factories uh, very, very quickly. Um, you know, really, when we think about it at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to solve that in a lot of ways through technology, solving the, um, I would say that, that supply chain diversity problem. And when we talk about how, how we create cost savings, you know, traditionally would say, you know, go to a factory. I want you to do this, but I want you to do it cheaper. And there was this vision that we'd have these robotic factories that build everything. And there are some robotic factories out there and they're good fits for certain products. But how does your product transition from that prototype factory to that low volume and mid volume? And then finally onto that robotic factory. That's really where Macrofab comes in is managing that transition through our software platform. So right now, I mean, explain that, explain the verticals. How many different types of business services do you do in, in the industry manufacturing? 
Um, we, we tend to look at, you know, we talk about solution space, um, you know, uh, and we'll often look at that as sort of a stream. You, you go from the engineer all the way up to the purchasing manager and to the factories that are producing it and the distributors selling the components. Um, so when I look at it from a solutions perspective, uh, we have a just-in-time self-service manufacturing solution for low-volume, mid-volume, and uh, R&D. So engineers can come in, they can upload the designs, instantaneously get a quote, get manufacturability feedback and supply chain feedback at the earliest design stages. So we go ahead and start resolving those. Um, and then as they're transitioning into higher volume production, the engineers can manage uh, that data over to their purchasing teams and their purchasing teams can start placing larger orders. And then when they need to start, you know, whether it's one product or multiple products needing a multi-manufacturer solution, we're able to come in there and, um, you know, actually manage that whole process you know, whether we're talking, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of units uh, in parallel factories, and that's managed there. Now, to one of the, the, the big solutions we have that helps to really enable all this is about multi-source inventory management. So if we think, you know, uh, you're in the business of uh, components, right? And, you know, one of the things that uh, we really see is, especially in today's market, uh, components are coming from a lot of different places for customers, for the OEMs out there right they may have some stock that they were able to acquire years ago and they're holding on to and they need to deploy to the right factories at the right time and they need some turnkey so our platform enables the customers to manage both their own inventory and the turnkey inventory um, all together in one place and be able to deploy that to different products at different times so we give our customers one one view of that inventory. They can store it in our warehouses, and we can get it out to the right factories and enable them to manage that as well. You know, I I, I want one question. I'm a little bit uh, uh, challenged for you here because one thing mm -hmm. as we know, you know, you well is mm -hmm. manufacturing is a very traditional uh, industry, especially in the U.S. I would say probably ten to twenty percent of the the big manufacturers in the states are very technology advanced or going to industry 4.0 or those standards are very business intelligence. A lot of the smaller guys are still working off, let me call it kind of the analog basis of Excel sheets, the, the very, very, um, uh, I mean, I would say not even robust systems of basic old ERP systems that were built 20, 30 years ago that don't really connect anything. And it's all, it's all about, you know, give them components, give us a board, fill the board, especially contract manufacturers. You know, OEMs are different sort of contract manufacturers, and because they they build, they're not large. They're probably ten, twenty, thirty to fifty million dollars. Even there's some hundred million dollar companies are still not so advanced. Mm -hmm. How the partners you work with, you also help like EMS people you work with, or or partners that you use them as a source or as a service. You also go in there and help. Okay, these guys have a lot of uh, competitive advantage. I key with it. help them evolve their technology of how you can communicate with them, especially because you're talking about inventory, the management mm -hmm. side. How mm -hmm. can you, you know? It's hard to get all that data out and put into your system to give to your customer. Yeah, and so I think you hit on a good point, and, and I would even kind of push back a little bit and say, yeah. even some of the larger manufacturers, uh, some of the largest in the world, may have some great technology systems, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're being fully utilized through every aspect of the business. And that's where I think a lot of manufacturing ha has really struggled. Um, we talk about Industry 4.0, but what does that mean all the way up to the customer level? How, what's the interface to the customer for that, that kind of data and those kind of tools? And we find in a lot of cases, it's still missing. It's still spreadsheets. 
Um, even at very large organizations, you know, customer experience is managed through a spreadsheet. And so, you know, our approach to working with manufacturers is really to meet them where they are um, and to really work to ensure a great customer outcome, no matter what level of technology that that factory has. Um, obviously, we want them to have better technology um, and we through our own platform, give them some tools to better, you know, manage status and, you know, get the data they need to build the job. You know, we, we really kind of, we maintain that digital source of truth about the product. You might call it the digital twin or whatever. So all that history, everything that's going to go on, everything you need to know about how to build this product, you can get through our platform. But, you know, one of the things that we know it's very difficult to do is to go to a small manufacturer, someone that's making five or $10 million a year and say, well, you can start making money when you go through this really heavy IT overhaul, this big lift. Um, it's great if you do, you're wanting to do that, but how do we make you successful even if you don't have that? Um, how do we connect you to that data and give you access to it and give you the ability to report uh, effectively? That's really been our approach to date. Um, as we go forward, you know, obviously we are going to be, you know, pushing more on the technology because it does really, you know, when you get down to the factory level, if you have a great ERP, great MRP, a great MES, right, it really helps us to connect into that and give the customer better visibility into what's going on. Uh, but one of the things that we've been, uh, we're working on and we have some new products coming out or solutions, if you would, over the next uh, year, are really around connecting to different parts of the manufacturing process and um, giving the customer access to those regardless of what systems the uh, manufacturer has in place. So we think about you know, your test infrastructure, whether you're talking about test fixtures and test data, um, how do you manage that? How do you get that off the fixtures? How do you get it into a reportable environment? How do we do traceability uh, back into your devices? Uh, once they're in the field, if you have an issue, how do we determine everything that went on with that, regardless of what kind of systems the manufacturers have available to them? Uh, so that's been a real focus for us, because again, for us, it's about the customer at the end of the day, right? What gives them a great experience? What gives them the data they need to be successful? Um, we know the manufacturers will follow the customers, right? So that's that starting point, you know, get the customers hooked on that data, hooked on those live feeds, and then encourage the factories to integrate their systems more and more into those. Yeah, I mean, as well as I kind of you kind of say you're a disruptor in an industry of kind of bridging, but giving a value of a service, and as well educating both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to educate both sides because today, you know, everybody talks about data. You know, MRP, tech stacks, building this intelligence, having a product information management system, having a source of truth. You know, mm -hmm. all these things are these new terminology acronyms around like really what do they mean? You know, and how do they work and how they function? You know, we have them, they're available. But the challenges is for the traditional manufacturer or a contract manufacturer and even the OEMs who create or just uh, are just engineers, they don't get both sides. And it's like understanding the data. How do you read the data? How do you integrate it? What's it going to solve for us? And then training them through this process. And again, that's where the value comes from. Like, this is what we're going to do into we will help you not just build your product more at a more efficiently and give you the product faster to meet your customers demands at the end of the day generate more revenue we're also going to train you at the same time with our service how to 
improve your internal process, improve your efficiencies, improve the process. And so again, it's kind of a disruption as a value service. It's not like you have a, you know, you have a margin, everybody's in there making money, but you have a margin, but you're quantifying their results, both sides, mm -hmm. you know, right. you're helping right. them and introduce customers, you know, from the EMS side to choose customers they've ever seen before or products and services that they, hey, you can change around. They have all these abilities, but they're and the capacities, but they're not being used because they don't have the customers and you can fit that right customer to mm -hmm. to fulfill that uh, that capacity that generates that machine or the test machine or whatever they're doing. Right. And again, that's kind of a disruption and all it comes from data sites. Like, what can we do? How can we retrain? How can we mm -hmm. use, you know, automation, but retrain the staff and the people and engineers? Um, it, it's it, to me, it's a disruptor. Disruptors are the cause of innovation and moving things forward. It's not a bad wow. term. Like disruption is not disruption <laughs> good. It creates, yeah, you know I mean, creates people to yeah, start that's, thinking, right? Exactly. You can't you can't have innovation without some form of disruption. Right. But yeah, you know, I, I really want to hit on that because that, that's one of the things that you know we we've worked pretty hard on, uh, which is really matching the factory to the design because um, this has been a real big challenge for customers. If you think about that, you want to go out there, you want to find the right factory to build your product, you're going to go out and get a bunch of quotes. And if you're, you know, a big enough customer or the product is, you know, financially interesting, everybody's going to want it. Um, and how do you uh, vet those factories? And traditionally, like you go in, you'll do an audit, right? You'll answer questions. Everybody's seen the same questions. We've all been through the same audit over and over, right? And everyone knows how to answer it just right. And you're still, you're left feeling no better than you did before. So one of the things that, that we built early on is, you know, we internally call it our factory AI, which is the ability to match uh, based on actual performance data uh, against similar designs, how well a particular factory is going to, is going to, is likely, how likely they are to succeed with your objectives given this design. And we, we find some very interesting results in there, right? We tend to think that we want all the factories with all the latest equipment, all the tools, you know, all the coolest stuff out there. Fancy gadgets. Yeah. Right. But depending on your product, you may actually be a better fit for a factory with older technology because they've really dialed in that equipment and that process towards designs like yours and they just get consistent repeatable results whereas that fancy new factory right with all that you know with millions of dollars and great new equipment is really good at producing a cell phone but not at your ac controller right you know Without legacy uh, products i mean legacy part mm -hmm. mean legacy they're just uh traditional products that don't need all the fancy bells and whistles to for production and there's yeah. a, still a huge huge sector just like you said like the oh, hvac yeah. basic Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of industrial side of products mm -hmm. that use that legacy type of manufacturing. We, mm -hmm. You don't need everything. You can, again, it's a, it's kind of simplified because it's a old, very old technology. They've innovated it, but I agree right. with you 100%. You don't have to have all those bells and whistles and everything. Right. You can right. have very structured and they're just, they're very good at their trait. Mm -hmm. That's Excel and you can quantify them by giving them because, hey, they're good and nobody's in, uncovering this gem that mm -hmm. could help a lot of others. And that's where, again, your service right. comes in to value that and become mm -hmm. that source of truth of, hey, wherever you wanna go, in your industrial, medical, you're in automotive, you're in, you know, whatever, your aerospace defense, that mm -hmm. we have that right fit for you, correct? Yeah, and that's, yeah. and it's interesting you bring up industrial because since we're based in North America, uh, all of our factory capacity is in North America, industrial is a very big uh, product space for us and our customers. Um, 
And, you know, that's where, you know, we tend to think, you know, we all get infatuated with like consumer electronics manufacturing, right? It's so difficult. It's so challenging. Um, but when we think about industrial, it runs everything in our, in our everyday lives. You know, I can't, you know, just, I'm so dependent even in my home, right? On all this industrial technology. And, you know, we tend to overlook that and we overlook the factories that have specialized in that. And, you know, again, we get this model in our head of this perfect factory. But when we start looking at the really successful industrial factories, it's as much about process and data collection as it is about the, the technology and the equipment they've deployed um, and the ability to re repeatedly and reliably do uh, an effective quality job. And that's what our platform is measuring. Because uh, I don't know if I touched on this earlier, part of how we make this whole thing work is we do second secondary QA for all of these factories that are in our network. They're sending uh, a finished good back to us. Okay. And we're doing this analysis on, and actually not just taking someone's word, you know, saying, oh yeah, that we did a good job and the customer's happy. We're actually coming in here and reviewing that, uh, reviewing them against IPC specs, giving them feedback and where they have process defects, et cetera, so they can improve. So you come about secondary compliance, uh, testing <laughs> functionality process, hitting all the figures, because of course, you know, some manufacturers don't have all those, those type of things, or they're not, they're, they're good at many putting, filling a board. Mm-hmm. And then they can say, okay, we can do minor testing, but say, you know, of course, like Macrofab can do the finalization to make sure everything's for fit function to the customer's requirements and adding more value to that service that you're handing the product with, again, 100% guarantee that this is right. your expectations and the quality standards that you're looking for. Absolutely. And, and you get this really great network effect, right? Um, you know, the more customers that flow through our platform, the more factories, uh, that we send jobs to and the more diverse those jobs are, the bigger and better that data set becomes. And with each new design, each new customer coming in, we're seeing better and better outcomes because they're all building on that data set, uh, from all of the other customers in our platform. So, I mean, for the for target market, I mean, again, industrial people, I mean, it's not a big sector for you. So higher, high mix, low volume. Doesn't mean it's low mm -hmm. volume. Volume is tens of thousands of products. It's not, but right. high volume is like consumer products when they're making millions. Right, so it's, a, right. it's a different ball game, but they're higher. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would assume that you're focusing on a little higher end products that are more kind of more innovative, correct? You're not going for, you know, I mean, you can do it from MPIs and do the onesie twosies, but I think your goal is to have um, a higher end uh, product that has more complex um, standard. Well, for us, you know, I think a lot of our products, it, it varies, right? You know, some of the products we produce the most of are on the pretty low end of the complexity and the value chain, but they're critical products to, you know, our, our economy, as it were. Safety um, products or something like, you know, anything. Yeah, yeah, energy products, yeah. stuff like that. Um, we deal with a lot of, you know, high complexity, high technology products as well. Um, and that's where really where we look at it, what works, the, the customers we work best with are those that tend to have a pretty broad catalog of products, each having distinct needs. And that's where we really succeed with customers. Um, you know, we work with companies that do produce consumer products, um, but will produce, for example, all of the products that build those products, right? The things that they rely on in their uh, manufacturing processes, et cetera. But 
you know, where, where we like to say we really succeed is if you've got 10, 15 different products you need managed, um, and they require eight, nine different kinds of factories. And you've got that super high technology product, you've got this low technology product, and you're just struggling to go out there and manage all the different factories. That's where we really succeed with our customers. And that's, you know, once they're in there and their engineering teams are in there, the purchasing teams are in there, then they start getting all the value out of the tooling itself and the technology. And they're like, okay, you know, and every day they're able to get more value out of it. Um, and then we find they just bring more and more products into the platform. I mean, you guys, uh, I think you've been in business almost uh, a little over 10 years now? Um, nine years. Nine we years, just had the ninth years. anniversary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, through those nine years, I know starting up as a, where you can't come starting up, I mean, one of the founders. So when you started this company with the same vision, uh, I mean, again, the vision of process and technology, was it a startup business or did you come out of a business or did you have a, you just start a manufacturing company? How, what, how, did, how did that come about? We, we've been a technology startup since day okay. one. Um, I had just, you know, when I decided to start this, I had sold the robotics business and I had just sold a, we had just sold, exited a cybersecurity business I'd started uh, significantly a while back, another technology startup. And so this is the world I know, right? So we're, we're venture backed. Um, uh, we're, we're not, a, you know, kind of a mom and pop kind of shop. Uh, we're, we're here to be a big organization, a big growth company. Um, you know, our investors really believe in the vision of the future uh, that we speak of. We talk about treating manufacturing like a cloud service, like your Amazon Web Services, your Google Cloud. You know, imagine having at the the at your fingertips all the tools you need uh, to deploy. You know, your products getting the manufactured at the click of a button on demand, um, and that's that vision we really started out with. And it really takes. A technology mind to get behind it right if we had gone through sort of the traditional manufacturer manufacturing startup process right we'd have to first become a um a profitable electronics manufacturer and then you know redirected a little bit of that profit into r d and technology um and it would just taken us a very long time to get to where we are today so we went the other route we convinced software investors to invest in a manufacturing company <laughs> Uh, that also happens to be a technology business. Yeah, I mean, again, through that, so have you done, I mean, because you said you guys have your own manufacturing facilities, testing mm -hmm. facilities. Through this time, last nine years, have you guys acquired uh, other companies or has it just been still self-grown within? Uh, all organically grown. Um, all yeah, yeah. So we, we, we didn't, we haven't acquired any manufacturers or anything like that. Um, this has just been, you know, us growing as a team from two people on the first day to a little over, you know, two people in one office uh, on the first day to a little over 200 people in five countries today. It's 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 phenomenal on that on mm -hmm. that that scale. I mean, it's just the success of what you can still do in manufacturing. People say it's it's there is a lot of share, especially what's going on in the world. I mean, now fast forward to say 2009, 2020, the pandemic happened, and we didn't know for the first five months what was going to happen. Did you on that point? Did, were you also involved? Did you guys get into some of the medical side, of dealing with some of those companies, uh, bridging that gap to get products out? You know, we we looked into that. Um, you know, we don't target the medical industry today, and we didn't then. Um, we, we looked into that, and there was there were certainly some interesting projects out there. Uh, there was, you know, I, I'll admit from my perspective, I was a little concerned that there was a lot of interest, but not a lot of meat 
behind those, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of flash, but I, I wasn't sure that there was a lot of staying power in that. Well, and, it's just the respirators and all the machines they needed for the hospitals, and they want a quick right. turn and fast, and they were trying to get as fast as they can get them out. Right. We were, we were building some of that, uh, but we, we didn't jump in, you know, overboard and like, you know, put all of our eggs in that basket. And we were fortunate that we did because we didn't have that immediate drop off that a lot of those companies did uh, when, when suddenly they started realizing that some of that equipment wasn't what was actually needed out there. And they weren't, you know, in a lot of cases, they weren't directing those resources in the right way. So we did get involved and help some of those projects but it wasn't a very significant portion of our business um you know a lot of our stuff was still at that time still you know heavily industrial so okay. uh, like i want to do a little case like i want to question myself so i want to mm -hmm. just follow how for the listener people understanding manufacturing how you would work working with macro fab so for example i am a i'm a r d company i'm a vendor i vent uh some type of widget I have a bill of materials of uh, 250, say, items that are on the bill of materials that go into the board. I have some mm -hmm. plastic molding, you know, you know, some type of connectors, cable assemblies in this process. And, you know, I, I find your company, hey, can you guys assist me on um, doing from MPI to full production? Right. How how is that customer experience? If someone like, again, I have it all in Excels and all the things <laughs> and I have the Gerber files and I have the drawings. Right. How will we interact? How does that work? Uh, how does Macrofab start that initiation of a new customer qualification? Yeah, so typically for us, um, for the vast majority of our customers, they start with an engineer signing up for our platform. And then when they do that, they're able to come in there and simply upload the design file straight out of their EDA tool. Uh, we've also, we also work with Altium. We have a partnership with them and uh, they're currently uh, about to, you know, we released earlier this year an integration directly in Altium Designer, and that's about to go full GA here in the next month or so. Um, so in that case, someone just in Altium Designer just pushes a button. But in our case, we take your design files, we can take your manufacturing files, you drag and drop them on the screen, and then we instantaneously start pricing. We show you your design, we start giving you the feedback, uh, we show you material availability, pricing, labor pricing down to the individual component level. Um, and you're looking at your design on the screen and seeing a price, seeing a lead time, you can plug in numbers, right? Say, I want 20 units, my first prototype run. And we'll say, you know, how fast do you want it? Do you want it in 10 days? Do you want it in 20? Do you want it in 30? And we give you that different price. And then when they're ready to go, they just have a complete e-commerce experience. They can come in, put in their credit card, click the button, check out. It's like ordering from Amazon shows up 10 days later right uh fully built that's how we typically start our interactions with companies but what we learned a long time ago you know no, no matter what we like to think as technology people nobody spends a million dollars without talking to somebody right, right? and when you start getting into that that full product assembly you've got the plastics you've got wiring you got connectors all this stuff you've got to put together the reality what we've learned there is um the design information the customer have has is often insufficient to fully price and to uh, fully you know successfully manufacture. So what we'll do is all of the PCBA prototyping is typically done self-service by our customers. They go through the number of iterations they have. They start locking down designs. We manage that data, and then when they're ready to move into 
verification of a larger product assembly or start doing larger uh, pricing, um, they can reach out through our platform and then connect to our sales team and our sales engineering who will start taking that data. We now know what makes a successful prototype of their board, right? And what works and what doesn't, what the supply chain looks like, and then start merging that with the physical parts. And then, you know, this part is more like working with a traditional manufacturer, but it's, you know, working with a team of engineers to actually figure out how to translate that design into something manufacturable and then bringing all that data into the platform and making sure we have it in one place, you know, managed, version controlled, all of that, regardless of what the um, sort of the sophistication of the customer is, you know, they could have a PLM, but many customers don't, right? It's just Excel, like you mentioned, right? It's files sitting in Google Drive, right? Uh, so we have to manage that data for them. And we, we do that through our platform. And then we start, you know, figuring out and creating a strategy for success for that customer. We may be looking at what they're trying to achieve. It may be require two factories in Mexico and one in the US with the test equipment necessary that's able to collect the data necessary to feed it back into our platform and provide that information to the customer. So we'll actually help uh, design, manage that whole process. And then when the customer is ready to execute, uh, we push out all that work through our platform, everything from purchasing to uh, materials handling, kitting, building those test fixtures, and routing the work to the factories is all managed by our software platform. And as the customer, giving, the, the, giving all that experience and you've you discussed, is there a basic cost to that or the cost happens at transaction point? How does that work for the customers? Well, you know, uh, at the end of the day, what, what we, yeah, we go into the saying, customers are price driven, right? Correct. Our pricing has to be competitive, right? We have to be, you know, if we're twice the price of going to a manufacturer directly, you're not going to do it, right? Because this is your cost of goods at the end of the day. Um, so we don't charge the customer anything extra for that, right? We give them a competitive price and um, it's our job to figure out how to make money in that that market in that environment and that works between us and the manufacturers the material vendors etc uh but at the end of the day we uh we provide a cost competitive as if you were going to a manufacturer directly of course you know i was just saying as a customer it's like okay he does all because you're trying to get a quotation you maybe come to macrofab and you go to a couple other people you worked with before mm -hmm. and again the experience of it you've explained macrofab is a little more um immersed you have mm -hmm. a little more services and more digitalization, better UIs and better better customer support on that end to create a, I mean, they come with a invention and they come with a product that they create prototypes themselves and they just want to have better designs and you help them go through all of this. Mm -hmm. The challenge comes to be because again, they're price driven, but you know, Macrofab does all this work. So when they come in and put that, they sign up for the service. Is mm -hmm. there like an NRE cost or no? It just happens at the point of when they want to place the order. They get yeah, that all... origin is in there. Yeah, so it's all it's all part of the transaction cost. It's today. all transaction based. Okay, that's right. again, mm -hmm. that's that's the clarification is to understand because that I mean that's amazing because, but I, you know it's just to understand that the value brings us on the back end. That's your duty to figure out the costing, the product, the supply chain. Give the turnkey, and you can work with your suppliers to negotiate your margins in there and give mm -hmm. a cost competitive. Because again, you're right. also paying for the service. If you want, you know, you want to, you know, if you want a high-end service that there's value in it and that you, there's reliability, or you're just going for the cheapest price, mm -hmm. you're gonna have. There's gonna be 
lack of quality, lack of service. Yeah. There's going to be gaps. And sometimes you pay for that convenience. You pay for that service because you get a quality product. And the, the day you have to ship this to a customer, have reliability because you get returns or it just doesn't work out. There's mm-hmm. even much more losses. So educating the customer about that because, again, they're price driven. Right, oh, I right. can't afford, I can't do this, or this product should be mm-hmm. more, or this draw, you know, and especially today, dealing with now going into today's world of all the, the longevity of, you know, some of the golden pieces that are missing, some of the challenges mm-hmm. of the semiconductor, especially microcontrollers and some of the mm-hmm. high MOSFETs, IGBTs that go into <laughs> some of these products that you can't, you know, they come to you, it's like, oh, the pricing of this part we can't get it what right. what do you do today what was how, how was putting out the storm or uh, mitigating that that disruption what did macrofab do to evolve that to de- still deliver to their customers yeah so you know like a you know like a lot of people in this market now we have strategic sourcing like uh like kind of have to right um there in a lot of cases there is material out there it's just not readily available um and you have to go find and isolate those sources uh we we do that um we one of the other big things like i mentioned earlier is about multi-source inventory management um you know one of the challenges a lot of our customers have especially when they're working with different manufacturers uh like two or three manufacturers they have to think about how i'm going to allocate materials to these manufacturers and that becomes a challenge because maybe you sent you're very very valuable you had that one reel of microcontrollers that you really need for and you use them in three different products and you sent them all to one factory but now they're suddenly held up on another piece of material and now you can't produce anything else right with macrofab we're able to manage that centrally so that we make the decisions about when to release materials to individual factories and so forth uh to prevent those kinds of outages and conditions um but you know i kind of want to uh roll back just a moment there you know and talk about the um you know the model and you know how people can consume from us uh we are building a a suite of additional services um that will be coming out the first couple of these will be rolling out here at the end of the year that our customers can buy as software services and what they will do is they will reduce the cost of their manufacturing um what we're able to do is transition some more traditional human labor uh, efforts like for example in compliance reporting test reporting etc and turn those into pure software services um, so we can remove those costs out of their manufacturing but i don't want to stray from that key point you just said there how the heck do you deal with materials out <sighs> i you know it's it's a it's a tough world these days right uh there is a there's a lot of technology we have to deploy where we're able to look at how people are consuming materials and start to try to make some predictions about where our customers are going to go so we can work with our vendors and suppliers to try to prep some of that. Um, but at the end of the day, we've got a lot of people doing redesigns. Um, you know, just kind of thinking about some statistics. If we roll back to like 2018, 2019, um, I had maybe, you know, looking across all of our orders and we produce thousands of SKUs a year, um, looking across all the orders, maybe have one to 3% have a material exception. Right. Rolling into 2021, we were getting 70% of orders with the material ex- exception. Now, you know, things are getting a little bit better, but the reality is you're at like 90% of products having a material exception. Right. And so one of the, we've taken two approaches to this, right? One is enabling using the technology to give our customers flexibility 
So one of the big things is everyone goes in with, with very few alternatives, right? And you think about this, you're, you're getting in the middle of production, you thought you were fine, uh, someone overconsumed, and now you can't go back, back and buy any more of that part. So you've got this you know, lengthy ECO process where you're going in there and you're trying to change, you know, work with the factory to get all the design data changed, the machine data changed so you can use this other part. Well, with us, that can happen on the fly. The second that uh, we're able to identify that there's a part that can be used in that product that won't affect its performance, we can inject that data right into the stream and it's immediately taken up by the factories and by our supply chain, by everything, right? And we can see that in real time happening. Uh, so having that flexibility to very, very quickly redirect our material purchasing and material consumption uh, without having to go through reconfiguring an ERP project, right? You know, being able to inject that data in there. That's one of the things that we do. The other is, um, you know, we have a lot of customers and sometimes people share the same material. Well, since we're managing this in one warehouse for our customers, we're able to work with those customers and see where someone has excess that they want to let go of and see where someone needs that material and facilitate that transaction uh, on their behalf as well. So there's a lot of things we have here, but at the end of the day, I'm still seeing, you know, in today's market, you know, 15% redesigns, right? Yeah, I mean, there is, and we have, you're feeling the same way, you know, we've had more challenges, but again, it comes to companies to have safety protection, UL approvals to how easy yeah. it is to change products, you know, yes. they have that power. We know that and been into that. Oh, we have to change. Oh, we found the alternative, but they have to go through UL. So, I mean, I guess, of course, you would have that service to have a UL test to get to that point, have partnerships to do that, but because it takes more time. I mean, redesigning a board sometimes will take less time than doing full UL safety protocol. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of these, you know, things change. So it is really, but it's a good thing because there was that disruption started that there needs to be multi-level EVLs into mm -hmm. people's designs. Um, unfortunately, they go on online to all the big, you know, catalog houses and they are just the main tier one brands. They just design them in because it's easy to get. Because again, it's accessible. It's by, mm -hmm. okay, it's, oh, this works perfect. But the challenge comes to be is our, our engineers and the sourcing or the sourcing side and then the purchasing or supply, they're not really, they weren't connected before. Right. They never had a life cycle. Yeah. Life cycle is a component. How readily is available? Is there any alternatives to it in case this does, does we don't, can't get allocation? So now I think it's prevalent in all designs, new designs going forward that they can't, you know, um, engineers have to have multi-level sourcing of two to three, at least into the AVL to prohibit, you know, not just using, again, the famous brands, having tier two, tier three brands were just as right. good. They're just right. not as branded, you know, mm -hmm. and not in and to designed in as well as working with partners like yourself to propose those and having the business intelligence of data, like life cycle process was made, how fast can readily available, is this a stocking product, is it non-stocking? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that comes to play is becoming that. And I know managing that inventory, becoming kind of a, uh, that creates liability for you too, because you have to hold inventory at that point. Yeah. But again, right now, inventory is not a bad thing to have because you can <laughs> turn faster, right? right? But again, the market is shifting. So that's what I kind of want to go to is like, it's been great. I mean, you've seen, there's a lot of ups and downs, you know, our industry, again, I call it the roaring 20s, you know, how it was 1920s. Hopefully there's no Black Friday at the end of that, but <laughs> we're in the digital technology revolution of how we're going to operate and live in this next decade. 
everything right. we touch, how we interact, what we do with our our lives today and how we work. Everything is has a basis of hardware. Communicating now, especially cloud computing, is getting faster. Once you know they figure out AI and all that, you know, fast. I mean, compute is just getting cheaper and cheaper and more scalable as you know the software side. And it is people can come up with a lot more, you know, innovative products. But the hardware is connectivity that everything is smart. You know, the initiatives to go green, you know, EV is just booming going into that. And all the all the product verticals that are around EV to supply EV market, charging stations, the smart cities. I mean, the, the logistics side, it's it's never ending and how the touch points of everything. It's, it's mm -hmm. fascinating. But again, right. there is that a pause and goes like, there's an inflection point of how everybody needs to shift and move forward, you know, and looking at businesses search so much and we can see, you can't grow these double digit numbers so fast over time, over time. Yeah. What is your forecast? What do you see right now in the marketplace? Because again, there's a lot of uh, things we can't control: geopolitics, supply chain, you know, pandemic, <laughs> or you know, wars and things that are going on. Right. What is your forecast uh, for the supply chain and for manufacturing in general in the next, uh, say, two to three years? You see, uh, 23 slowing down a little bit because of external forces, or do you think there's still going to be a huge upsurge coming in, going into the next two to three, four years? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think I, the way I look at this, and I don't think this is going to be controversial in, in any sense, right? Um, consumer is the, the tail that's wagging the dog here, yeah. right? Um, the, you talked about EVs, uh, we talk about computers, cell phones, all these things that are sold mass market that are taking advantage of the cloud computing and the other resources we have available out there, which is a lot of connectivity, a lot of processing power in smaller packages, right? This is really driving the market for us here. So what I'm seeing over the next uh, couple of years is it's gonna get harder and harder on our industrial customers. It's gonna get harder and harder on the automotive customers because they don't, not only do they not need this technology, today trying to introduce that kind of technology into their design creates more risk than they're ready to go with. You know. Do I go with a 20 year old microprocessor that does just what I need it to do and does it reliably? Or do I bring in a brand new, you know, five or seven nanometer, uh, you know, process uh, design in here that's got 75 functions I don't need? Um, how do I manage that risk into my product? The problem is, is that those manufacturers of those components, they're not investing in the older technology. So what's going to happen? So when I say that, the consumer is the tail that's wagging the dog. Um, we're really seeing uh, a drying up of the market and the hyper competitiveness in the sort of critical components in our lives, whether it's automotive, industrial, medical, et cetera. And it's pushing them to, you know, basically shift over to the same technology basis as the consumer products. So for the next two years, my prediction here is in the industrial space and in the older technology space, it's going to be a dog eat dog world without a lot of supply chain. Um, and barring, you know, please, you know, I don't, I'm not going to wish for, uh, you know, any sort of global recession here, but barring a global recession, um, we're going to start having to see these manufacture, these companies that are producing these more, these more industrially focused products, having to shift to newer technologies to get anything. So we're going to see a, um, a continued, in our space in particular, we're going to see a continued pressure 
on material availability um, and a lot of redesign going on out there, a lot of recertification of products. Um, and I think it's going to happen um, for the next two years. It's going to take time for people to recognize I'm not actually going to be able to produce this product anymore. The competition for the materials I need are just too high and no one's looking to expand capacity for those. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head because the legacy mature products, they aren't um, they aren't profit making for a lot of companies either mm -hmm. anymore. Right. They want to invest into new technologies, the microcontrollers, the five, seven nanometers. They don't want to make these old 70, 100, you know, nanometers. They don't want to make the old because they're 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 I call it, I mean same as penny parts. They don't make right. that. So for them, especially the public companies who are in this, they're in business to make money and the I mean, we all know if you guys read these bills and Chips Act and all this stuff, there's a very there's a very small percentage going into legacy type of production that actually feeds EV. It does. I mean, a lot of the old technology in EV, Tesla side, they're right. using the older kind of matured product, right. you know, um, into their into designs and how long the longevity of that. And then going into industrial side of mm -hmm. a lot of things that we deal with in the me mechanics and the way we live today and the motor drives and the control boards and there are a lot of that. It's uh, and again, aerospace and defense is another right. one. You know, and I mean, we've we've that's been a big one. There's a lot of legacy products that can't, and how difficult it is to change a design mm -hmm. from a 30-year-old product and the longevity of that. So that is a big, you know, thing. And there's not enough investment in that because they don't see the future as having new tech. It's not the, you know, and. I, yeah, you brought up a great point. It's, it's that, that microcontroller. I only need to do two or three functions. I don't need all these bells and whistles. I just wow. need to do this. And all those bells and whistles come with also a cost. Right. And that cost, uh, until it scales, won't come down. Right. Now, until right. that gets to that point, and these microcontrollers are, it's, um, but the sensors and the sensing and everything needs power. And people don't realize today, right. which is power is more important than ever. Right. Power charging chargers and then right. get the, the global, the national scale of power needed for nationwide and this, you know, building mm -hmm. the EV networks and we're having lacking of power and we're, you know, a lot of things of power is there. You know, there's a lot of that, again, things that we can't control, but it's understanding where are we going as well as educating the customers and making the right decisions into the designs mm -hmm. they're trying to make for the longevity of the product. And that's the value of the service companies like yourself can add to the supply chain. It's like, hey, mm -hmm. we see this from our business intelligence, business analytics that we have, we can see X, Y, and Z. And right. if you're going to have a four to five year or 10 year product run, you got to start looking now of what right. time because you're going to get to obsolescence. And a lot of people want to get into stocking products for three, but nobody wants to stock products for three to four years. I mean, it's, no. it's a lot of liability, a lot of money. You know. Right. I mean, it's not like it's not like it's uh, it's not impactful either. Right. Those 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 products become more and more uh, less and less reliable the longer they sit on that shelf. But, right. you know, I, I think. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, right? You know, this isn't some fundamental thing that says, you know, these these chip manufacturers are going to just refuse to produce these older older node technologies. It's really it's about a cost benefit analysis, right? If you're looking at one die, and you can produce a thousand chips that sell for fifteen cents, or a thousand chips that sell for thirty bucks, yeah. you, you know, from a business perspective, you'd be a fool to make that decision. And so in a lot of cases, we're our own worst enemy in the supply chain because we're only willing to spend that 15 cents on that chip. Well, now who wants to produce it at that price point? Um, but what's the risk there? You're going to go to the, the $15 chip and you got all these other additional risks. You know, 
I think we're, we are going to be able to continue to see the older technology in play and available as long as we're willing to pay a higher price point for it. Right. And that, that may be the right answer. Um, and it's going to take a long time to move that market. No, I've been paying 15 cents for this for 30 years. Right. What are well, paying $15 or $30 for that 15 cent part? Right. Because I think it's supply and demand at that point. Exactly. And I think we've all seen those. We've had heard the stories of what's going mm -hmm. on because it's gold, you know, right. a 15 cent part is now, you know, I've seen things of crazy hundred dollars a piece because it's, it becomes gold and that's, mm -hmm. that's the market, you know, that becomes right. that, you know, unfortunately, and it and but again i think the, the inflection of the people paying those ppvs and like oh wow but we can still be profitable our product can be still then you know we don't have to go back to the normal and like and then the manufacturer say hey we can raise our price be a little more profitable still have this in process do not discontinue it right everybody wins everybody right. wins you know we're not paying 30 dollars yeah. for that part that's 15 cents maybe we're paying two three dollars for 15 cents right. but again it's better than nothing and it's better than you know changing that design. So right. I think that's giving more people, um, especially the people who are the ownership and stakeholders, to understand like you know, what are we doing and can we afford to pay? Can this product be, you know, especially industrial side? The the mm -hmm. consumer we know that's just driven by cost. Right. Consumer. Right. The industrial side there is more margin in that, and, mm -hmm. and there is more ways to work it out. Right. Um, but again, it's, that's what I want to understand from your side. But you see, the future is bright in that. So, how about for the manufacturing? How do you see? Do you see um, in the next uh, three to five years more manufacturing coming back to the states, or you think it's just going to be because you know, or do you think there's more just assemblies going to come back, not more of like just the Ford fillings going to still stay in Asia? What's your thoughts about that? Um, so PCB assembly, I, I see it's a growth market uh, for North America. Um, you know. Again, like I said earlier, that those days of we're just going to ship everything to to China or to Vietnam or to Malaysia, and that's how we're going to do our production. You know, I I don't see that as the future. I think that that model, the you know, the single sourcing through the cheapest you know market you can find, um, that that's geopolitical tension has kind of said, okay, you know, we're 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 going to put a you know a wrench in that. So what what I think we're going to see more of is multi sourcing. Right. Going out there and saying, hey, I'm going to produce my product closest to where I sell it. Even if I'm producing it at multiple different price points, the reality is, is I can't get a product into a market. I can't sell it. I can't be there. Right. And if I have to worry about what, you know, what trade is going to look like between the U.S. and Europe or China and the U.S. or, you know, Mexico and India, right? If I have to worry about those things and I don't have a backup response, um, you're, you're going to be behind the curve as a company. So I think if we look about 10 years out in the future, I would say multi-regional manufacturing and assembly is going to be more of the norm than the, than the exception like it is today. Um, so we're going to see companies producing the same product by default, even if it's not high volume, because we've seen this already with some of the high volume consumer products is you just can't get enough labor in one place. But that having that be the default, even for lower volume, higher mix kind of products, um, where, you know, it, it's just not as stable as it was. It's, this isn't the 2000s anymore, right? You, you can't say, I just know trade is going to increase, you know, between these two regions going forward. Uh, and you have to be prepared and have strategies for handling that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that the kind of the BCP plans. I think we went to the pandemic. Everybody's like BCP, business continuity plan. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have them. How do we? How do we? You know, source and reallocate, and we can't get sources product out of Asia. How do we bring it back? How do we? So I think a lot of more stakeholders are thinking about how do we have these kind of a, a multi-channel or omni-channel of sources geographically located. Don't put our simple. Don't put your eggs in all in one basket. You know, kind of case. You know what we're gonna do. Um, but I, I think diversifying, no matter what your supply chain, having uh, key partners that you can work with that, you know, it's not all in one basket either. You have key partners you work with and they have different supply chains. You have different supply chains here, you know, and, and I think that the large, large manufacturers in general, I think the big flexes and Foxconn's and Sam, you know, Sam, they, they've done a little better job because they, they're doing that. But again, because they're just such a large scale, they have so much more power. But right. it's a different scale. I mean, you have to look to the middle, the middle market, lower market, which is still hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, billion dollars of lower over billion, say two hundred fifty billion dollars in states of manufacturing, and right. you just take ten percent of that. You know, it's a massive, massive number of what right. you uh, want to bring to the states of the middle manufacturing to do that because they don't have um, all that supply chain power, the power to buy and procurement and negotiation. Right. They have smaller teams, but with just like companies like yourself, with the software and the analytics, they can make better decisions of how they're mm-hmm. going to trade, you know, in the, in the, get into the micro of it because the, the systems are intuitive these days. People were just basing off of gut instinct or feel like let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's read the story. The data tells a story. That's the narrative. Right. You know, where do we want to produce? What's the customer needing? And, and now not just being a product, but also asking the customers, what do you want? Mm-hmm. What value does it bring to you? It's not all about the manufacturers. It's like, how would you like, and what, what, what are your fears? How can we address those fears? How can we understand and surveying them and understanding them and talking to all of them? Like, you know, we want to bridge that gap to be that service provider that can make you comfor- comfortable that we're producing it. And if something natural disaster happens in some geographical location, that we won't have downtime, that we can still deliver the product. Because at the end of the day, it's it's been it's been hard because a lot of manufacturers couldn't get those golden pieces or couldn't get their mm-hmm. product. Some people had to shut down because right. they couldn't, you know, they, if you can't sh- invoice, you can't get cash. If you're not public and if you can't right. invoice your product, you can't get cash flow to pay your staff. You can only hold that for so long. And as right. we know, in contract manufacturing, manufacturing <laughs> in general, it's a very inventory and cash based and cash flow process. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is tough. I mean, I know you guys yourself, even though you're back to, you have venture funds, but you can see there's a lot of movement of money. And, and again, there's people to pay. And if you can't ship a product out, you can't invoice, you can't get it, right. you can't get it receivable. You know? So yep. and that's, that the, and that's that. that full circle of right. what dealing with. Right. And, you know, just thinking about that, you know, uh, we, we are seeing, you know, at all levels of manufacturers from tier one through five, right? This sort of saturation of inventory levels waiting for one or two parts here. And, you know, the reality is, is the old days of just, uh, I'll pay you for it when you deliver me a, a finished good is going away for a lot of those customers as well. They're having to share in the risks with their contract manufacturers or the contract manufacturers just aren't taking it. They're like, look, I, I can't be the only one on the hook here, right? Um, you know, if, if you know, if we're gonna work together to deliver this product, we have to we have to share in that that capital risk. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just, you know, I need someone that's got that's ready to build a product that has, you know, all material availability, right? Um, because you, you can only collect up so much inventory at the end of the day. 
yeah exactly exactly that liability that comes well chris it's been great chatting with you catching up understanding macrofab again the the service you guys are providing the industry revolutionizing how manufacturing is done bringing more value and service and and technology uh you know forward service to companies and really you know revitalizing and bringing i mean the software side you know again your software based of bring that back and that's really what the hardware industry needs is to kind of have a disruption to move all of us forward thinking bigger thinking smarter thinking for the future so thank you for what you're doing and coming to the marketplace and i can't uh love to chat with you more you know sometime in the future yeah. absolutely and rob thanks for having me uh really enjoyed the conversation today it was a lot of fun and i also look forward to talking to you more in the future yeah it's been great well thank you very much and thank you for coming on the real talk